passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. If you were following the news this past week, you probably noticed that the Beijing government issued their first ever red alert based off of air pollution. Uh, They said that things were so bad in Beijing that they were placing severe limitations and restrictions on the people, encouraging people to stay indoors for as much as possible. People who have lived in Beijing uh, have talked about the difficulty of living there with the great amount of pollution. They've said that they have had constant sore throats for years on end. Some of them have resigned themselves to their fate and have just said, you know what, we're going to stay indoors for as much of our lives as possible. Beijing, of course, is not the only place that is struggling with pollution or has struggled with air pollution. Many of us are aware of Los Angeles in the 1980s and 1990s and their struggle with smog. Uh, Mexico City is another place that is commonly known as a source or a location where there is a great deal of pollution. Uh, Just a few days ago, our society and and many different countries met together in Paris to talk about curbing environmental pollution. This is not at all a political statement, uh, but it's just a, a reference to our society's awareness of pollution today. See, we've become, over the past couple decades, more and more aware of environmental pollution. But at the same time that we have recognized that, we've actually lost an understanding of a different type of pollution. And that is the pollution of sin. You see, throughout much of world history, there has been a recognition from people that sin defiles us. Sin pollutes us. It makes, to use terms taken from the Old Testament, makes us unclean before God, unable to enter into God's presence. In the 1600s, Shakespeare understood this. And his famous play, Macbeth, the title character, after killing King Duncan, says this, will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? Macbeth recognized and realized that Sin stains us. It pollutes us. It defiles us. Macbeth's wife reaches the same conclusion a little later on when she says, Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Sin pollutes us. Sin defiles us. It makes us unclean before God. And many of us may have chosen to forget that. Our culture may have chosen to forget that, but the reality remains the same. Sin affects us deeply. For the people of Israel, this was a very grave problem. After all, God lived in their midst. God was holy, and they were unholy. And to make sure that God continued to live in their midst, something had to be done with their unholiness, with their sin. Thankfully, God ordained a way for that to happen through the sin offering. Last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through the first few chapters of Leviticus, looking at different offerings, different sacrifices that the people of Israel made, and hopefully tying them to our own lives today here as Christians. 
We looked at the burnt offering. We saw that this was the way that someone became acceptable before God. We saw the grain offering was a way for the people of Israel to remember who God was and remember what God had done for them. Last week, we looked at the peace offering or the fellowship offering, and we saw that this was a way to celebrate with gratitude what God had done and the ways that God had answered prayers. This morning, we're in Leviticus chapter 4 and Leviticus chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the sin offering. As you can probably guess, based off of the name of this offering, this is an offering that deals primarily with sin. But it doesn't focus just on forgiveness. It's much more specific than that. The sin offering focuses on removing the stain of sin, removing the pollution of sin. In fact, if you were to sum up the sin offering, I think you could say it this way. The sin offering washes away the stain of sin. The sin offering was the way in the Old Testament that the stain of sin would be washed away. And to see this, what we're first going to do is we're going to look at what sin is just in general. More importantly, we're going to see how sin affects us today, affects our relationship with God. Then we're going to see how the people in the Old Testament addressed this issue. And then finally, we're going to spend some time looking at how Christ is our ultimate sin offering, accomplishing this purification once and for all. As we approach God's word, please pray with me. Father, as we look at this passage, we pray that you would come through your Holy Spirit and speak to us. Teach us more of who you are, And more of what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, first, let's take a moment and just define sin. Sin, literally, uh, the word in Hebrew just means miss the mark. It's actually an archery term used used to refer to someone who fails to hit the target. I think that that's a a pretty good place to start. Sin is missing the mark. What is the mark? Well, of course, the mark is God's word as decreed in his law. That's a good starting place for us. Sin is missing the mark, not living up to what God's word tells us. But we can't just stop there. As we worked our way through Genesis, we saw several different things that sin is. First of all, sin is rebellion against God. Sin is choosing to exalt ourselves above God. Sin is choosing to follow our own way and our own desires over God's way and God's desires. No wonder sin is so offensive to God. Because sin is an attack on God. It is a declaration of war against him. Stan Norman describes sin this way. He says this, Sin must never be taken lightly. The Bible presents a horrific picture of the devastation of sin. Sin is idolatry, rebellion, missing the mark, straying from the path, treachery, lust, ungodliness, and wickedness. Sin disregards, commits with willful error, brings guilt, and lacks integrity. Sin lusts, perverts, and breaks the law. This is the problem that is facing humanity. And as we look at the Bible, we see that sin isn't just something that we do, but sin is something that affects us greatly. 
In fact, the, four, the Bible lists at least four different and distinct ways that sin affects us today. First, sin alienates us from God. It alienates us from God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, Remember that you were at one time were strangers, uh, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Sin damages our relationship with God nearly beyond repair. And something must be done in order for that relationship to be restored. In the Old Testament, this is what the burnt offering was primarily for. We saw that the burnt offering was to make one acceptable before God. It was a way to restore the relationship with God. After the burnt offering, the peace offering was used as a way to remind people of the peace that now existed in this relationship. Remind people of the relationship between God and them and with them and others that now existed with peace, not alienation. Sin alienates us from God. Second, sin enslaves us. Titus 3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated hated by others, and hating one another. Sin is deceitful. Sin makes us believe with false promises that we will find satisfaction, that we will find pleasure, but instead it enslaves us. We are in great need of redemption from the bondage that we find ourselves in. In the Old Testament, this is what the Exodus was about. The Exodus was a time where the people of Israel were freed from the slavery to Egypt. But God came and redeemed them from their enslavement to the people of Egypt. And the grain offering was a way for them to remember that redemption. To remember that God had loosed the chains of sin. Had loosed the chains of Egypt and had provided them with salvation. With redemption. Sin enslaves us. Next, we see from Scripture that sin makes us guilty. Once more, we turn to Paul in Colossians 2. says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I think when we think of salvation, when we think of the cross and what Christ has done for us, most often we think of this. We think of the fact that we are guilty before God, that we stand condemned before God, that we are deserving of punishment, and Christ took our place. We call this justification, that God has pronounced us righteous in his sight, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And indeed, we are guilty. We are deserving of the punishment that is coming our way outside of Christ. We are in need of someone to pay the penalty for us. And in the Old Testament, that's what the burnt offering was for. The burnt offering was meant to substitute an animal. For an animal to die in the place of humanity. It was a way for the guilt to be removed from humanity. 
This was coupled with the guilt offering, which we're going to look at next week as it talks a little bit more about guilt. Sin makes us guilty. And the final area that we see as we look at Scripture is that sin defiles us. Sin defiles us. Revelation chapter 7. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We mentioned earlier that sin pollutes, that sin stains us, makes us unable to stand before God, unable to enter into the presence of God. And Revelation provides this beautiful picture here of what Christ's death has done for us in order to make us able to enter into the presence of God. The beautiful imagery of white robes declaring the purity of the saints, of Christ's bride, the church. Christ has made us pure when sin has defiled us. In the Old Testament, this is what the sin offering was for. It was primarily to help the people of Israel enter into the presence of God. Primarily to focus on how they could continue to worship God. It wasn't mainly about relationship or the removal of guilt, but instead how they could be worthy of entering into God's presence. As you can see, the effects of sin are numerous. Sin makes us guilty. Sin defiles us. Sin enslaves us. Sin does so many things more than just making us guilty. And that's one of the reasons why there's so many different sacrifices mentioned here in Leviticus. Because sin is so pervasive. A comprehensive solution is needed. And the way that God accomplishes that is through all of these sacrifices in the Old Testament. Let's drill into this last one. Mention that sin defiles us. And that is what the focus of the sin offering is. If you have a Bible, open up to Leviticus 4 and Leviticus 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. Now remember, as we approach this text, God is holy. Israel is not holy. If God is going to live among the people of Israel then something has to be done with that unholiness, with that defilement that sin causes. Even the unintentional sins of the people of Israel defile them. Everything that they do, whether they mean to or not, defiles them in God's presence. If you notice, as you read through Leviticus 4 and Leviticus 5, as you notice over and over a repetition of the phrase, unintentional sins. Unintentional sins. Leviticus 5 gives us an example of what these sins were like. Pick up in verse 1. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of an unclean swarming thing, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath, 
to, to do evil or to do good, any, su- any son of rash oath, or excuse me, any sort of rash oath that the people swear and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, and then it goes on to say what they're supposed to do. Here we see three different types of unintentional sins that the people of Israel would often commit. This is just broad categories. It's not referring to uh, necessarily everything that would be an unintentional sin. First example is not bearing witness when you were supposed to. It was expected for the people of Israel when they were witness to something or they became aware of something that they were to bear witness about it, especially if they were one of the few people who had seen it. It was a responsibility of theirs. This is somewhat similar to uh, some countries today have what we call duty to rescue laws, where it is your moral responsibility to provide assistance if you are able when you see someone who is in distress and it is reasonable to do so. It was, responsi- it was the responsibility of every single person who lived in Israel to bear witness if they were able to do so. If you did not bear witness, whether you forgot about it or you missed the quote-unquote court date, you were responsible for your sin, whether you meant to do it or not. Second category that we see here is a prolonged, uh, a prolonged amount of uncleanness on the behalf of the Israelites. If you've read the Old Testament, especially Leviticus, you see these distinctions between clean and unclean. A lot of times we, seem to, we, we tend to separate or, or define those by saying that clean means holy and unclean means sinful. But that's not exactly what the distinctions are. We see that uh, there are many different things that defile a person that aren't necessarily sinful. Touching a, uh, a dead carcass of an animal was not necessarily sinful, but it would make a person unclean. Having leprosy or another skin disease was not sinful, but it would make you unclean. Being unclean wasn't the problem. But after you were unclean, God commanded that you would become clean. That you would perform the right rituals to make sure that you were cleansed and able to dwell in front of God once more. If you went for an extended period of time without performing those purity uh, rituals, that's where sin enters in. The unintentional sin enters in when you don't clean yourself rather than becoming unclean in itself. It doesn't matter if you forgot. It doesn't matter if you didn't realize what your status was. It was an unintentional sin. And the third and final one is rash or forgotten vows or oaths. If you committed yourself to do something before God and you ended up not following through, whether you forgot about it or whether you didn't really mean it at the time or or whatever the case may be, it was a sin that needed to be atoned for, an unintentional sin on behalf of the people of Israel. So those are a couple uh, ancient examples. I think we can broaden those categories today to refer to a couple different things. Uh, in, In our modern day understanding, I think that we have two categories. First, unintentional sin stems from ignorance. Unintentional sin stems from ignorance. A number of years ago, when I was growing up, my family made the trip from southwest Iowa all the way out to Chicago, and we went to Wrigley Field. We went to a Chicago Cubs game. Now, um, living in Chicago for a couple years, I I now recognize that there is no parking around Wrigley Field. Um, It is a completely, utterly developed area of Chicago, that neighborhood of Chicago is. And so most people who uh, go to a lot of Cubs games, they will just ride the train. 
or they will walk long distances to make, the, make sure that they get to the stadium because there's, zero, there's very little parking around the stadium. Of course, being from southwest Iowa, my family didn't know that. So we decided to drive from the hotel to Wrigley, and we drove around for 30, 35, 40, 45 minutes looking for a parking spot. Finally, we found a spot, what seemed to be too good to be true. We pulled in. We got out of the car. We went into Wrigley, watched the Cubs lose, of course. Came back to our car, and there was a pink ticket there waiting for us. There was a reason why this spot was too good to be true. It's because it was too good to be true. We had parked illegally, and we could have used the excuse of the fact that we didn't know any better. The sign was confusing. We were from out of town. But every single excuse that we would have had would have not made us innocent. We were still guilty of illegally parking. This is a sin from ignorance. It doesn't matter if you know what you're supposed to do or not. God declares that we are still held liable for the things that we do, intentional or unintentional, from ignorance or from knowledge. Romans chapter 2 declares, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though that they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Ignorance is no excuse for sin. Next, we see unintentional sin can also stem from negligence. Unintentional sin can also stem from negligence. When I was in high school, right after I had gotten my license, it was a uh, rainy day, and I was driving from tennis practice, uh, to tennis practice. We had relocated our tennis practice from an outdoor facility to an indoor facility where we were going to be um, practicing there. And as I was driving from one location to the other, my uh, friend who was in the passenger seat began talking to me. And I was headed down a hill, and it was wet out, and uh, I was slightly distracted. And so I didn't brake as much as I should have, and the car in front of me didn't go as fast as I thought that they were going to be going. And so I rear-ended the car in front of me at a whopping two miles an hour. I hop out of the car, freaking out about what I've just done, because it was my first accident, jump out to, to look to see if there's any damage that's happened. There wasn't, thankfully. But the person who jumps out of the car is my tennis coach. The only damage that had been done was to my chances of playing at our next meet. But if there was damage to his car, I would have been held responsible for it. It doesn't matter that I was negligent. It doesn't matter that my friend was distracting me. We are responsible. We are liable for the sins that we commit, even from negligence. And that's what's in view here. Unintentional sins are the things that are in view here. It's interesting. If you look at the Old Testament, there is no sacrifice. There is no possible way to atone for your sin if you do something intentionally against God. 
There is no sacrifice for what the Bible calls the sins done with a high hand. If you are going to outright rebel against God, you will be cut off from your people. In fact, only one day a year were those kind of sins addressed, and that was on the Day of Atonement, the most somber, the most holy day of the year for the people of Israel. What is in view here is unintentional sins. As you hear that, you might begin to say, well, wow, the people of Israel in the Old Testament has a much stricter view of God and of sin than I do. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think most of the time we can say, you know, we, the sins we commit, they're, they're unintentional sins as well. It's not like we wake up every morning and say, you know what, I'm going to swear today. I am going to do everything that I can to make sure that I disobey God today. We are in the middle of a heated argument and something that we shouldn't say slips out. We are feeling a lot of stress at work and so we ignore the help or we ignore the requests of others for help and just focus on ourselves. Even this morning, my guess is each and every one of us has sinned unintentionally in some way. It's not because we meant to do it. It's just because it happened. And that's what's in view here. Cleansing us from the stain of these types of sins. As we look at Leviticus 4, we see that there are five or six different categories that are mentioned here. First, we see a category, the first section in Leviticus 4, uh, verses 1 through 12, focus on sin of priests. If you notice, there are different levels of severity that are mentioned in Leviticus 4. But what isn't focused on is the severity of the action done. What is the focus is the severity of the person who performs the action. So in Leviticus 4, it is a bigger deal to God if a priest sins against him than a, religious, uh, than a, a civic leader. It's a bigger deal to God if a civic leader sins against him unintentionally than it is if another person sins against God. Why don't you go ahead and throw up uh, our first image here. This, uh, can you go to the next one? We're going we're gonna to start with that one. When the high priest was to uh, perform a sin offering, what they would do is that they would uh, enter into uh, that tent there. And um, actually, go ahead and go back. I'm sorry. I should have said there. Um, so this is what is called the holy place uh, for the people of Israel. And most of the sacrifices that we've studied, all of the sacrifices we've studied, don't enter into what this is, uh, this tent the, the holy place, except for this one for the high priest. The high priest would have to bring the bull that they were to sacrifice into the very holy place where God himself lived. And they would offer up their sacrifice on what is called the altar of incense, which is that golden box right there, if you can see it. It was a very severe penalty for someone who was considered to be a religious leader to sin against God. And so they had to enter into the very place where God lived, into the holy place to offer their sacrifice. And just a challenge for those of you who are spiritual leaders. If you are an elder or a leadership board member or a church staff member, or even if you're a volunteer leader of our ministries here, God 
demands more of you than he does other people. He has higher expectations for you. This is why in James chapter 3, James says not many people should become teachers because they will be judged more strictly. This is what is in view here when the high priest offers his sin offering. Next, we have the entire community. If the entire community, the entire congregation of Israel, if they sinned against God, then they would also have to make atonement in the holy place, again, in this location as well. Hundreds of years after the book of Leviticus was written, we have this story of a king named Josiah. For decades, the people of Israel had been turning their backs on God, ignoring him. The temple of God was in great need of repair. And Josiah decided that it was time to repair the temple. As the people of God were repairing the temple, someone discovered the book of the law, what was the equivalent to the Bible back then. No one had read from this book for decades. So Josiah, out of curiosity, says, I want you to read this to me and tell me what it says. And as he hears from the words of God what the people of Israel have done to sin against God, as they've turned their back against God, he tears his clothes out of grief and anguish for their sins. That's what's in view here for the sin offering of the entire community. Next, we see various leaders. Go ahead and flip to our next one now, Zach. Various leaders had a special reason for, uh, for why they should offer in a different way as well. These are, in view, government officials or heads of families, anyone who is in a leadership position in Israel. They had to offer a more strict sacrifice in Israel for their offerings. Now, instead of being in the, the holy place, in the tent, what they would do is they'd come out here to this other altar. This is the burnt offering altar where every single sacrifice is all offered. So they would come out here and they would offer theirs out here. This is where the burnt offering is offered, the peace offering, the grain offering, and the rest of the sacrifices we're going to be looking at this morning. Anyone, whether they were a spiritual leader or not, who had a leadership position, it doesn't matter if it was in the community, it doesn't matter for us if it is in some sort of civic organization, if it's in our place of employment, it is an expectation for God that there are higher uh, demands on their life from those who are not in leadership positions. Just a challenge to us again as well. If you are a leader in your business, a leader in the, in the YMCA and Kiwanis, a number of different places, God has high expectations for you because in a way, you are representing him in front of others. And the final area, and this is where we're going to jump into the text, is for everyone else. If anyone else committed sin, they had a specific way that they were to approach God as well. The requirements weren't as strict for them, but they were still strict nonetheless. This starts in verse 27 of chapter 4. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the, of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings 
And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. What we notice here is that first the people of Israel had to recognize that they were guilty. It's the first step in atonement, was recognizing that they were guilty. Second, they would bring forth an unblemished female goat. Later we see that they can bring forth an unblemished female lamb as well. Just like the other offerings of animal sacrifices, they would lay their hand on the head of the animal as a sign of association, as a sign of substitution, and then they would kill the animal. After killing the animal, the blood of the animal was placed on the altar or was poured out on the ground, and the fat and the entrails were then burned on the altar. Here, the altar of the burnt offering. The rest of the animal was given to the priest as a source of food. This is how people would wash away the stain of sin. This is how they would deal with the pollution of their sin. This is a compulsory sacrifice. It was something that had to be done by the people of Israel. So if you couldn't afford a goat, or if you couldn't afford a lamb, then there were um, exceptions made where you could offer up a pair of doves or a pair of pigeons One of the doves or pigeons was offered as a burnt offering, the second as a sin offering. If you couldn't even afford those small animals, then you could even just bring forth an offering of fine flour that amounted to about eight to nine cups of flour. Just like the grain offering, a portion was burned and the rest was given to the priest. This is why the sin offering is good news for us. The sin offering is good news because God forgives all. He makes a way for every single one of us to be forgiven. Yes, it's on his terms. Yes, there are strict requirements, but this forgiveness is available to every single one of us. It doesn't matter the extravagance of our offering. The same amount of forgiveness is given to the person who offers up flour, to the priest who offers up a bowl. What matters is the repentant heart of the offer. So that's the sin offering. You might be saying, okay, I, I get it, but where's the application? How does this apply to us today? After all, when we looked at the burnt offering, we said, you know, this is a call for us to live wholeheartedly in devotion to God. When we looked at the grain offering, we said, this is a, a call for us to remember what God has done for us, remember who God is. And when we looked last week at the peace offering, we said, this is a call for us to be more grateful. And to celebrate our gratitude with a party. So how does this apply to our lives? I think the answer is found in Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with human hands. That is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works To serve the living God. See, the reality of the cross is this sacrifice doesn't apply to us today. There's not even a principle that we can take out of the sin offering to apply to our lives. 
Because Christ came and washed us clean. Because of the cross, we are now able to enter into the presence of God. It is because of his death that there is no sin offering that washes us clean, but it is instead the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9 continues, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who, call, who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to be, suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Hebrews 9 tells us that the death of Christ not only purifies us, not only washes us from the stain of sin, but it assures us of our status before God. It assures us that we are forgiven. Because of Jesus, we don't have to worry about screwing up, about messing up too much that God no longer forgives us. Because of Jesus, we don't have to clean ourselves up first before coming to him. We never have to doubt the relationship that we have with God. Our status before God does not rely on what we do doesn't rely on how good we are at following God, how often we read our Bible and pray to God, but is instead focused on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. One more passage from Hebrews. This is from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, in the Old Testament, the sin offering was the way that the people of Israel dwelt with God. It was the only way for them to be able to dwell with God, but even that was limited. Only the high priest was able to enter into the holy place where God himself lived. And even then, they were only able to enter into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. They were only able to come before the very throne of God, but once a year. But because of Jesus, through his blood, we have permanent access to the throne of God. That's how the sin offering, quote unquote, applies to us today. We don't have to look to the blood of animals to redeem us, to purify us, so we can approach God. Jesus has done that. We don't look to the sin offering to wash us white as snow. For we have full access to God. First John tells us this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Christmas can be tough for many people. It can be a very tangible reminder of estranged family. 
It can be a very tangible reminder of family that has passed away. It can be a reminder of the financial strains that you are experiencing. The sin offering and the blood of Christ for us, the unrestricted access to Christ that we now have because of him, reminds us that God cares. Reminds us that God cares about us. That he hears our pleas. That he hears our requests for help and for provision and for comfort. And the sin offering reminds us that we can have confidence to approach him boldly with those requests. That we can share our requests with him because he has washed away the stain of sin. It is not the sin offering anymore, but it is Christ himself. Those who are in Jesus are holy, completely, utterly purified through Christ and through his sacrifice on the cross. Remember that this Christmas. Rejoice with confidence this Christmas of your status before God, not because of the blood of animals, but because of the blood of Christ for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that the sin offering no longer applies to us today because you offered once and for all a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of your Father, to make us righteous and pure before you, to draw us near to you. And Lord, this Christmas and and every single day, God, I pray that you would help us remember our status before you and approach you boldly and with confidence because of what you have done for us. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.